So our scripture reading this morning is from the book of Acts. It's Acts chapter 9, and we're going to read verses 32 to 43. If you don't have a Bible, I'd invite you to uh, take one of the blue ones that are in the chair racks. You can find uh, Acts 9 on page 1168. I'm going to also have the words uh, on the screen behind me as I read, uh, so you can be ready for that. I'm thankful, grateful uh, again for Pastor Craig D. Benedictus, who was here last week. Craig continues to be a great encouragement to me in ministry personally. And as we'll see in a little bit, the text that he just happened to choose last week, and the same exact thing happened the last time he preached, the text that he chose to preach on, which seemed just random and out of sequence or whatever, happens to fit exactly with where we find ourselves as we continue back into the sermon series I'm doing. So um, it was just an amazing blessing listening to, uh, to his sermon last week. Uh, That sermon series, as a reminder, is a study here in the book of Acts, specifically this summer looking at chapters 8, 9, 10, 11, and 12. And these chapters document the spread of the message of Christianity in the earliest days of the church. And this morning we're going to finish off chapter 9. So let me invite you to stand as I read this text. And when I'm done, I'm going to make the declaration that this is the word of the Lord and invite you to respond by saying, thanks be to God. Acts 9, starting at verse 32. Now, as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. There he found the man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now, there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas, She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood before him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. And calling the saints and the widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for uh, many days with one Simon, a tanner. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. In, um, in 2007, Stacy and I uh, visited the site of a miracle, uh, or so the legend goes at least. It happened more than 40 years ago in a small ice arena in upstate New York. That's where the 1980 sat us in the stands of this empty, pretty much dark, Uh, old ice arena about halfway up in one of the sections and so you could kind of look out over the uh, over the arena and they had set up on a little stand (laughs) kind of in the uh, in in the in this among the seats a a television monitor and they they sat the small tour group down behind the television monitor and they turned the monitor on and they played uh, the video clip of the last few minutes of that legendary hockey game so that you could watch on television what happened right in front of you in that arena. 
Now, the U.S. hockey team, in the last couple minutes, they were up four to three, but the Soviets were at the end of, at, the, at their end of the ice, at, at, at the U.S.'s end of the ice, and they're trying frantically to score that last goal that would tie it up, and, and the TV announcer, Al Michaels, is describing the actions as the seconds tick by. 15 seconds and they're battling for the puck, 10 seconds and they're scrambling, 5 seconds. And then with 3 seconds left and it becomes clear what the outcome will be, Al Michaels shouts, do you believe in miracles? And you hear in the background one of his co-announcers shout, yes, right as the clock ticks to zero. The buzzer sounds and then a, a bunch of U.S. college kids who had beat the best hockey team in the world, the pride of the Soviet Union at the height of the Cold War on America's home turf. It was a miracle, at least that's what they called it. But was it? A genuine miracle anyway. Strictly speaking, no. Right? No natural laws, as far as I could tell or ever heard, had been broken. Gravity, physics still controlled the game of hockey, as far as we were able to know. The coefficient of friction of a puck sliding on ice, unchanged, as far as we know. Speed of puck travels when it's hit by a stick, still predictable, still measurable. Unlikely, their victory. Unexpected, certainly. Really fun to watch. Makes a great movie. You could even call the movie Miracle. But strictly speaking, not a miracle. What we read about in Acts 9, though, oh, these are different. Definitely something going on here. Here we have some miracles. And we're going to talk about them because it's not less than a passage about two miracles, but it is significantly more. We're going to talk about it. It's as simple as one, one, two, three. You've got one gospel, two miracles, and three observations. One, two, three. First, one gospel. Go back to the passage uh, that we read in Acts 9. At the, beginning of, at the beginning of Acts 9, the text we looked at for the first two weeks of July, we learned about the dramatic conversion and the early ministry of this guy named Saul, who would one day become the great Apostle Paul. And the primary job of the Apostle Paul, the task for which he was known, was to be the missionary to the Gentiles. And, and when we, we read that, we see the shift happening. In the first part of Acts chapter 9, you sort of see that shift occurring. Okay, up to here, we had been reading all through the end of chapter 8. We've been reading about some of the early apostles and disciples that had been primarily Peter-centric, and now here we have the conversion of Saul, which we know, looking back, is a dramatic hinge point in the life of the, of the Christian church. The shift of the geographic center of Christianity moving away from Jerusalem and Judea, and you might almost kind of say, well, this is a shift then that's going to happen right here, right now, away from a focus on Peter. Now, Jesus had laid out the plan and, and said this is the way the plan was supposed to work. Back in Acts chapter 1, he had given the overall outline to the disciples about what was going to happen just before he ascended into heaven. He said that they would be witnesses on his behalf and to what they had seen in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And this had been happening already. It had already been going on. The message of, 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 about Jesus had spread to Ethiopia. It had spread south into Africa. It had spread to the, to the north, to, to Samaria. It spread into Damascus. That's where Saul was converted. And we would almost expect that, that, that from now on, this is what would, would happen. You'd shift away, from, so shift away from Peter and you would go to Paul. And that will happen. But interestingly, we, try to, we get back to the end of Acts chapter 9, and it's not happening yet. We go back to Peter the apostle to the, to the Jews, or so he was known. And interestingly, we don't see Peter in Jerusalem. We see him moving west 
towards the Mediterranean Sea. The gospel had gone to the south, it had gone to the north, and now it was going to the west, to, 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 to Lydda and then to, to Joppa, which was on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. Now, there were Jews in those places, but these were Gentile lands. And we see Peter being the one to take the good news about Jesus, the gospel, into these places. And what this is meant to show us, what this is meant for us to see, is that Peter and Paul and their mission were not at odds. There was going to be a shift, there was going to be a transition, but it wasn't as if it was saying, okay, that was the Peter gospel and that's over, and now this is the Paul gospel that kind of goes outside of Jerusalem. By shifting back to Peter and seeing him take that same gospel outside of Jerusalem to Gentile lands, it's a way of communicating by the author, Luke, and God, the ultimate inspirer of the, the book of Acts, helping us to see that Peter, Paul, it's just one gospel. It is a gospel for, for all nations. And this is helpful for us to remember at the very start of it all. And perhaps particularly helpful in our day as well. As we look and consider other churches in our community or in the country, and where the gospel of the message and the life and death and resurrection is the same, then we are one church. You know, I was, I was really encouraged by it. So last year at this time, as we were getting ready for Calvary Kids Camp, Grace Bible Church, a church we prayed for just a couple of months ago in our pastoral prayer, right around the corner from us, they came, they saw the, the theme of what we were doing, that it was a construction theme for our kids camp. And they came and said, you know, we've got a whole bunch of, got a whole bunch of decorations that's construction theme oriented, and we'd love to give them to you so that you can use them. They, 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 we, we, we would love to serve you and, and, and do you a favor. And it was great. It was a huge blessing for, for our church. One gospel. Two churches, same community, one gospel. A couple of weeks ago, Grace Bible Church came to, to us and asked a favor. They said, Tom, I, um, we, uh, we don't have a speaker for our youth retreat. We kind of delayed a little bit and, the, and it didn't work out and stuff. And, and, we, and we need somebody. Would you do us a favor? Would you help us out? And I took to our elders. I, I asked our elders, I said, what do, you, what do you guys think? And you know, I was so encouraged because the answer was not just like, well, yeah, I mean, I guess so. The answer was, I think that's great. That would be great. Because I'm thankful to have a group of elders in a church that kind of says like, yeah, two churches, one community, but we're not in competition, one gospel. Every Christian church, every Christian has different personalities, different strengths, different weaknesses, different styles, but we have the same gospel. That's point number one. Peter, Paul, same ministry, same mission, same gospel, one. Now, let's look at two, two miracles. First miracle, the healing of Aeneas. This is the shorter of the two accounts, the two miracles here, and it's fairly self-explanatory, but let's just note, note a couple of things. Uh, first, it happened in Lydda. We already said that, but it's about Lydda, where that is, about 23 miles northwest of Jerusalem. Fairly important trade city on the way to Joppa, which was on the Mediterranean coast. Now, note that Peter doesn't go to plant a church there. There's already saints who are living there. Now, just a quick word about that, because it says he went to see the saints who were there. Remember when we encounter the term saints in the New Testament, what we're talking about. When, when our family was in, um, was in Nashville last week, we, uh, we went to the Country Music Hall of Fame. There's 149 inductees into the Country Music Hall of Fame. Last summer, we visited the Pro Football Hall of Fame in, uh, in Ohio. There are 262 inductees into the Pro Football Hall of Fame. 
And it's tempting, and sometimes we tend to think that uh, the, when we talk about saints in the Bible, when we see that or when we hear that word, that we're somehow talking about a special Christian hall of fame. It's not. Right? When the New Testament uses the word saints, it's not talking about a hall of fame status or a title that's given to some sort of uh, super Christian or a Christian, a Christian lifetime achievement award. It's not that. A saint is simply a Christian, one who has been made holy. That's what that word means, saint one who has been made holy by God through Jesus. And there were a bunch of them living in, living in Lydda, including a guy named Aeneas who, it says, had been paralyzed for eight years, confined to his bed. And that's the next thing to note. Aeneas was really paralyzed, eight years. This isn't just a short-term kind of thing. There was no doubt about it. This isn't something that you could fake. He's like, well, he was just walking last week. I don't know. No, no this was eight years the guy had been paralyzed. We don't know the exact extent of it. We don't know if it was full paralysis, just his legs, one thing or another, but we do know that he couldn't get around on his own, and he was confined to his, to his mat, to his bed. You don't fake it for eight years. Now, next thing to note is that Peter doesn't claim credit for it. Did you see that? He doesn't heal in his name. He heals in Jesus' name. It's the same thing that Peter said when he healed the lame beggar back in Acts chapter 3, right? In the name of Jesus of Nazareth, rise and walk. That's what he said in Acts chapter 3. He's saying the same thing here. It's not me. It's in the name of Jesus. Peter doesn't have the power. Only God does. Peter recognizes that. Now, last thing to note here. After the man is healed, the first thing that Peter tells him to do is to make his bed. It reminds me of that famous graduation speech that um, Admiral William McRaven uh, gave at the University of Texas, Austin back in 2014. He said the first thing that he learned about changing the world in Navy SEAL training was that the first thing you do every day is to make your bed. He said, because taking a small task seriously at the beginning of every day was the foundation for every task that was then to be done after that for the rest of the day, right? Think about making your bed. Why do you make your bed? I'm assuming most of you do. Why do you make your bed, right? What does it symbolize that like you're pulling the covers up and you don't come back to it? You're, you make your bed during the day because during the day you don't need your bed, Peter was telling the man by saying, make your bed. He's telling the man, he's saying to the man that for the first time in eight years, you don't need that bed. When we are converted, what we used to rely on, we don't need anymore. I mean, it doesn't mean they may not still be a part of our life, but they are not, they are not the means of our, our primary means of our comfort and our salvation. Right? The person who keeps going back to that to that drug, to that, that, that fix, to that high, whatever it was, as their primary means of salvation once they're converted, they've forgotten to make their bed. The man didn't need it anymore. He was healed. That's the first miracle. Now, the second miracle, raising of, the raising of Tabitha. And I prefer, between the two, I prefer the Aramaic Tabitha to the Greek Dorcas. I'm sure Dorcas was considered a very pretty name for a woman in the first century, um, but I don't think Dorcas plays as well. In our, um, in our time. I, let's just say that I don't think that it would have played very well in my elementary school for a little girl named Dorcas. So I'm going to go with Tabitha. But whether it's Tabitha or it's Dorcas, both are names that mean gazelle, which leaves you with, a, with an image of grace and beauty and activity. And, and, and it appears from the way that they were mourning her, that's exactly what this woman was a beautiful woman of grace who was always actively involved in the lives of others, but not anymore. She became ill, 
and she died. And they prepared her for burial. But hearing that Peter was nearby, that he was around, Joppa is on the coast of the Mediterranean. It's only about 11 miles away from where Peter was in Lydda. They sent word to him and they said, come, you got to come, come quickly, come without delay. Evidently, Peter's reputation had preceded him. They knew that God had been working through him. And so, so they thought they'd give it a shot. Now, this is where it's interesting because this is where Pastor Craig was last week in John chapter 11 with, with Jesus and, and the raising of, of Lazarus from the dead. Remember, when Lazarus was sick, they sent word to Jesus too. And they said, come quickly, your friend Lazarus is, your friend Lazarus is sick, he's dying. Now, interestingly, in John chapter 11, Jesus doesn't come right away. He heard that Lazarus was ill. When he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Wow, what's he doing? Jesus, see, see, it doesn't always fit the same pattern. God in his timing, God in his ways, sometimes delays and sometimes acts immediately. In this case, here, Peter acts immediately, and he agrees to go. Now, also in this case, the girl's already dead. And when he arrives, he sends everyone out of the room, and he prays, and he tells Tabitha to get up. And guess what? She did. (laughs) She got up. Brought back from the dead and raised to life. And don't think, don't be tempted again, and this, you know, you, you, this temptation kind of exists. Don't be, th- don't be tempted to think that she was just really sleeping. They knew what dead was, okay? I mean, they didn't have the modern scientific kind of instruments and stuff like, uh, like that we had or whatever. But people, people in the first century, right, they knew what dead was. Tabitha was dead. And Peter went and he prayed for her. And this little girl, well, not a little girl, this woman who was dead, is now alive. So that's the one gospel, and that's the two miracles. Now, I want to make three observations from this whole story as we kind of look at everything together. First observation, the gospel spread. Do you see what's happening? Did you note that associated with each of these miracles is just simply an extension of what God said he was going to do, the spread of the gospel? He's using these miracles as part of his overall plan. More people exposed to the message about Jesus, more people believing in the message about Jesus and becoming Christians. Look at verse 35. After Aeneas was healed and made his bed and got up, it says, all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, meaning they saw Aeneas, and they turned to the Lord. They became Christians because of what they had seen. Look at verse 42. God raises Tabitha from the dead, and it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. Same thing. See, this is what happens when the gospel goes into a place. When the gospel really goes into a place, when the gospel enters into a, into a community, when it enters into a family, and it's really understood, the gospel fills the room, if you will. Have you ever met somebody like that who enters a room and, and, and their presence just automatically captivates the room? You say, like, their, their presence just fills the room as soon as they enter it. It spreads. The gospel's like that. Now, it's tempting to use virus metaphors and kind of say, like, you know, it spreads like a, a virus, but I don't, wanna, I don't like that. I'm sick of tired of talking about viruses. And besides, the gospel's a good thing. A virus is a bad thing. I like the image of the old preacher from Philadelphia, James Boyce, when he talks about perfume, he says it's like, it's like you open a, par, a, a bottle of perfume in a room. And I'm not talking about something that's too strong or obnoxious or something. I'm talking about something that smells beautiful. But the thing is, is once you open that bottle, it's everywhere. 
It just spreads. You can't put it back. You can't, you can't find a spot in the room. It, 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 just, it just spreads throughout the room. It fills the room. Once it's released, it fills the room. The gospel is like that. First observation. Now, second observation, gospel results. When the gospel fills the room, stuff happens. When the fragrance of the gospel spreads and it's breathed in, it doesn't leave people the same. How could it? I mean, I know it's easy to say when you look at Aeneas, you look at Tabitha, and you say, like, well, of course they were changed. I mean, the one guy was, 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 uh, was paralyzed. I mean, of course he was changed by, by the, the, the gospel entering into his life, the power of the gospel entering into his life. I mean, look at Tabitha. Of course she was changed. She was dead. Now she's alive, right? Well, but, right? Now, here's the thing, though. You don't need the miraculous healing to experience the gospel results. The power of the Holy Spirit, the, the, the message of Jesus, understood and believed, produces gospel results in every person. And when it does, it does not leave the world the same. In fact, did you see, did you notice, did you see the gospel results in the life of Tabitha even before she died and was raised, uh, raised again? Did you see who was mourning her death? Who was it? The widows. Did you notice that? Peter gets there, and there's this group of widows who are crying and showing Peter all the clothes, all the, all the tunics that Tabitha had made for them. What had she been doing? She had been caring for people. Don't skip over that. What was Tabitha doing before she died, before she was raised back to life? She was caring for the widows. She was pouring her life out to help those who are in need. I'm amazed, and I did this a couple times this week. When I when I taught, this is wonderful. This is a mark of the gospel in this, in this church. When I call and I reach out, or, you know, on a regular basis and stuff, and I talk to, to, the, to the widows in our congregation, I'm always behind the curve. It's wonderful. I always get, when I call, when I, when I call the widows in our church, I'm always, I'm always more encouraged by the call at the end of the day because I get to hear from them all the people in the congregation who have been loving them, all the people who have been helping and serving them. That's what happens. The gospel changes things, and it changes communities. And, th- and it happens before she was raised to life. That's what she was doing. What this means is that the gospel had changed Tabitha before the miracle changed Tabitha. Do you see that? Is there some miracle in your life, something that you're asking God to do in some miraculous kind of way, and you're waiting and you're saying to God, look, God, once you do that, once you do the miracle, once you do this big, huge thing, once you heal me of this or that or whatever, well, then I'll get serious about serving you and obeying your commands. Well, if, that's what, if you're waiting for some other miracle, then you've missed the true miracle. Because the miracle of conversion to faith in Jesus Christ is the far greater miracle. Because the transforming miracle that produces the results in the life of Tabitha is not the raising of Tabitha, it's the raising of Jesus and Tabitha understanding that. In verse 41, where it says that Peter gave her his hand and raised her up, that verb translated raised up, it's the same verb that is used in the New Testament for the resurrection of Jesus. And it is only the resurrection of Jesus that brings about real gospel change. Because only in the resurrection of Jesus do we have real hope of an eternal healing, where the Aeneases are never crippled, where the Tabithas never die. When we understand the healing that comes through the resurrection of Jesus, then these temporal miracles, though important, and particularly in the lives of those who experienced them, they were important, 
but they pale in comparison to the eternal miracle, the eternal rising from the dead that is ours because Jesus rose from the dead. Now, final observation, observation number three, gospel practicality. And this is where I want to wrap up by returning to the general discussion of miracles we started with. Do you believe in miracles? I mean, definitionally, the Christian must. But first, we have to understand the primary point of miracles, particularly the ones we read about in the New Testament, like, like here in the book of Acts. A miracle in the New Testament, and it doesn't matter if it comes through Peter or Paul or Jesus, a miracle in the New Testament is never a raw display of power. Right? I could not be trusted with this question, right? You want to do miracles. You want to do something supernatural. What would you do? Like, have you ever had that question like in a small group, like an icebreaker question? You know, where you go around the room and you say, like, what superpower would you have if you could choose any superpower, right? If I could choose to defy the, I'm sure I would want to fly or something, right? But miracles in the New Testament are never that. They're never just raw displays of power for the sake of power. In fact, the word miracle is actually not what's most often uh, used to describe things like that. More often, they're referred to as signs. And that kind of makes sense when you think about it. Right? Because what does a sign do? A sign does two things, at least that I could think of that, that are applicable here. Sign, first thing a sign does is a sign will authenticate identity. Right? You take a sign and you hang it on something to tell you what it is. Right? You go to a, a, a dinner party or something like that. Sometimes they'll give you little signs to affix to yourself so that people know who you are. It's, it says this is who this is. It authenticates you. God used the signs performed by Jesus and the apostles to authenticate them. They proved that the person performing the sign was who they claimed to be. In the case of Jesus, that's the Son of God. The signs that he did were all meant to point to authenticate his identity. In the apostles' case, it was to authenticate that they were the authorized messengers who would accurately communicate and record the message of the gospel. Right? So a sign authenticates that on which it hangs. Now, the second thing a sign does is it points to something else. And in the case of the miraculous signs performed by Jesus and the miraculous signs performed by the apostles, those signs always pointed toward the restoration of the created order. All right, this is what I mean. The common definition of a miracle, when you kind of say to someone, what's a miracle? All right, common definition of what people assume is a suspension of the rules of the created order. In other words, the, the, the created order is overridden by this miracle that's happening. But a miraculous sign is better understood not so much as a suspension of the created world, but as a return to the intended created order, right? Where men are not paralyzed, where women like Tabitha don't die. And that's what the new creation will be, the new heaven and the new earth that are promised to every Christian is not a new world, it is a world renewed, a place where there is no crying and where there is no dying. So when we have a miraculous healing like Aeneas, like Tabitha, what we have is not so much simply a suspension of the created order, but an acceleration of it, an acceleration to the return of the created order that God intends to bring about. And one day, all of us will have the restoration for which we long. Now, understanding that is what I mean by gospel practicality. Because we might otherwise be tempted to get a little bit jealous when we see some people, like in the first century, getting the healings that they wanted and their resurrections when we don't, or our loved ones don't. But if we understand these miracles not so much as 
suspensions of the created order, but accelerations of the return to the created order that is one day promised to all of us, well, then we understand that we will get our healing someday. And, helping, and understanding that will help us in the meantime to wait for it. We will have our healing for all eternity. And yes, I know it seems long now, but that's what, that, that perspective is what the Apostle Paul is, uses to be able to say that these are light and momentary troubles in this time because they're far surpassed by a glory that, that, that outweighs them all. Now, I still didn't answer the nagging question that you might have. Do, mir- do miraculous signs still happen today? Does the church still, do we still see these kinds of things? Well, those opposed to miracles of any kind will commonly say that all things happen, all things always must happen according to natural law. And the Bible would not so much disagree with that statement. God did set up a natural order of things, a law, laws, common laws by which things happen. But it would clarify it, seek, us, seek to clarify that so that we better understand it. Because God's laws are not more sovereign than God himself. It's God who governs and God who rules over his creation and his created order and his natural laws. God's over that, not the other way around. In other words, the created order and the laws of the world in which he created do not rule him, and he is not subject to them. They are subject to him. As the Westminster Confession puts it, providence, which is what the theologians call this rule of God over all things that he has created, providence orders all things that happen to happen by means of the choices and actions of his creatures in a world of natural laws and orders. In other words, God ordains all things to happen in the world in which he has created by means of choices and actions of creatures in that world with natural laws and order in place. But this is his ordinary way of doing things. Ordinarily, the confession says. And it goes on to say, yet he, God is, free to work without, above, and against them at his pleasure. In other words, Does God ordinarily suspend the laws of His created order to accomplish His sovereign will? No, He does not. He is sovereign. He is so sovereign that He is able to accomplish His perfect decrees through the everyday actions, the everyday choices, the everyday laws of His created world. That is how He ordinarily acts. Is there a continued need for miraculous signs to authenticate the apostles today in the work of the church? No, there is not. That need ceased with the closing of the canon and the, and the completion of the Scriptures as we have them. There is no further need for the authentication of the, the truth and the, and, the, and the veracity of the Bible that we have. But is God still God? And may He choose in ways that we might not understand to act in a created order in this world at times in certain ways that we may not understand in every circumstance. Yes, we have to admit yes, because we are not God. Now, we must also say... While God may bring healing to those who are sick and suffering in a way that seems unfair or at least unequal. In other words, we ask ourselves, why did he choose that person? Why, why did they get healing? Why did he act? I mean, it might not even be a miraculous sign, but why did he act through ordinary province and medical healing to bring about healing in that person and not this person? The one thing we must be very clear to say is that there is no connection between the strength of faith and the likelihood of a miraculous sign. All right, look at Jesus. Jesus prayed that the suffering that he was about to experience, would, that, that, he, that, he, that, he, that it would be able to pass from him. He said, Father, if at all possible, nevertheless, not my will but yours be done. But his prayer, his prayer in that sense was not answered. Now, can you charge Jesus with not having enough faith? 
Can you charge him with some secret hit, sin hidden in his life that God is, is, is therefore withholding the, the request of the prayer? No, you cannot. Look at Paul, the Apostle Paul. He prayed for healing. He had a particular thorn in the flesh. We don't know exactly what it was, but he said he prayed, he prayed, he prayed that God would reveal it. Right? If there was ever somebody, if you're kind of doing a Lifetime Christian Achievement Award or whatever, you would put Paul in there. You'd give him the award. It wasn't a lack of faith on his part. God acts as he chooses to act with the promise and the hope that every saint one day will experience the healing that is promised. God has his plans and his plans are always best. How can we know? How can we know that his plans are always best? Because you're a saint. To say that every Christian is a saint is not to lower the importance of that word. Right? We might think that. It's okay, I, I used to think a saint was like up here. Now you're telling me a saint is down here. No, no. To say that, a saint, that every Christian is a saint is not to lower the importance of that world. It's to increase it. That word. It's to increase the, the meaning and the power of that word. Because we're able to sit back and say, wait a minute. <laughs> wait a minute. You're saying that the power of the gospel transforms me into a holy one into a saint. You can trust God because the primary miracle that he has done in the life of every Christian is by making them a saint. John, sitting in the back, said to me one time, we were talking about someone, and I forget who it was, but he said, uh, talking about this, this person's conversion, and I think I made the comment, and I said, yeah, that was a that was a radical, that was a radical conversion. You know, like the Apostle Paul kind of, you know, Acts chapter 9. I said, yeah, that was, that was, that was a, that, that person was radically converted. And John looked at me very patiently and he said, he said, Tom, every conversion is. Yeah, it's absolutely true. That is the miracle. Right, I, I remember Santo Garofalo, one of the churches that we've supported, going to be gone on the mission field. We're going to see him later this fall, and he'll be talking to us about what he's been doing. But I remember meeting with him and telling the story, him telling me the story of, of his conversion. He said, Tommy, he said, I'd never have had any trouble trusting and believing in the sovereignty of God in all things. He said, because I look at my life, and I look at what God has done for me, and I have absolutely no doubt in the world that I'm a miracle. Every Christian is in that place, or ought to be. What I love about that song that we sang just before uh, just before we, uh, we, we prayed and just before the sermon and can it be, is that it has that sense of amazement, that sense of absolute wonder that looks at our lives and says, I can't believe it. And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain? For me who him to death pursued? <laughs> Amazing love. How can it be? that thou, my God, would die for me. Let's pray. Father, thank you for doing a miracle in my heart, in the hearts of those who sit in this room and who know you and love you, not because of anything that they have done, because of what you have done for them. We praise you for it. We pray that fruit would result from it, that as the gospel fills our room, it would spread out into the community which we are a part of, and that the fragrance would be sweet and draw many to yourself. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.